Good morning. We are going to do part two of part eight. I know that sounds confusing, but part two of part eight, we're almost finished with the series of First John. And today we're going to finish up the fellowship's orthodoxy of love. The reason that I came up with that title is because the practical implications of love are all based on sound doctrine. And nowadays people try to divorce the practice from the doctrine. They'll say we're all good with the love, but they don't understand who is God because God is love. So we need to understand how sound doctrine impacts daily living. And so we've been looking at that so far. And we covered in this passage, which is verses 7 through 15, we covered verses 7 and 8 and verses 9 and 10. And so let me recap that just for a second. If you want to hear all the details, obviously go back and listen to the previous message. But the first point was the supernatural nature of love. And we talked about how love originates in eternity. We talked about how the Trinity is the only way to explain the existence of love. You need a God to explain the existence of love, and you need a tripersonal God. We talked about how love is engrafted in a moment, how we're born again, we become children of God, and we discussed that at length. We talked about how love is nurtured in a process, just like our human relationships have to be nurtured. Our relationship with God has to be nurtured. Uh, the second point was the historical nature of love, and we talked about the gift of love, which is, of course, eternal life. We have that because Christ was sent into the world, verse 9. And verse 10, we talked about the price of love that Jesus paid, and that's propitiation. So that brings us up to verse number 11. And I touched on this very slightly at the end of last week's message. But starting in verse 11, let's read there together. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, all throughout the New Testament, you're going to see this same sort of thing coming up. Paul says the same thing, essentially, in Romans 12.1 when he talks about how we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, and that is a reasonable service. It's a logical service. It's not required for salvation, but it makes perfect sense. If Christ loved us, then we ought also to love him, and by extension, to love other people. And so that's what John is saying here as well. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, this is going to be kind of controversial, but a lot of things Christians believe and teach are controversial. Whether or not guilt does have a role to play in sanctification. There are some Christians that would say no. And there are some Christians, like me, that cautiously says yes, it does have a role. And guilt is simply being ashamed whenever somebody does something and we say you should be ashamed of yourself. That can come across as malicious. Sometimes people say things like that maliciously. But there is a proper place and time for that. Whenever you say you ought to be ashamed of yourself, the goal is to get that person to wake up and realize the consequences of their actions, how serious it was, so they don't do it again. And we do that with kids. Okay, now we have to be careful about how we treat our kids because our kids aren't us. They're not adults. They're definitely not near as far along as we are in our faith. So we can be very destructive with our words if we're not careful. But there is a time and a place to say, okay, look, Today has been a rough day. You've been very ungrateful today. I've had to get on to you a lot. Now, I want you to understand something. I love you. Because I love you, I do all these things for you. I like to take you out to go, you know, play and, you know, have fun. I, I love to serve you. I like to get you your meals and take care of you because I want you to grow up and be healthy. 
I like to give you presents when you are on your best behavior because I love you. I like to do all these things for you. Every little thing that I do for you, you have no idea how much I love you. One day you'll realize that when you have kids of your own. But since I've loved you like this, you should be thankful and you ought to change your behavior. Now, that's not going to change if, let's say, you don't do that and you're not thankful because oftentimes they're not. You can give them a talk like that and there's no result, <laughs> unfortunately. But whenever you do that, the goal is to get them to be thinking about all the things that God has blessed them with in the context of the home, in the context of their relationship with you. And they ought to say, you know what? I ought not to mistreat my brother or my sister. I ought not to mistreat my parents. I ought to respect them and love them because they loved me first. Now, some people would say, it's a guilt trip. Well, it's a healthy guilt trip. There are healthy guilt trips. Now, the Bible talks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Okay? Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians. Um, excuse me that I don't have the reference off the top of my head. It's either in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. A quick Bible search will find you the verse. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. And God does induce that godly sorrow. He does that first, of course, whenever someone gets saved. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8. He convicts the world of sin makes them realize their need for him. And he convicts us still as our father whenever we're out of line. Now, of course, God, I think he gives us many, many chances. I think God is long-suffering. He's patient towards us. I think that God is not quick to wrath when it comes especially with the way he deals with his children. And I think that God will often get our attention in other ways besides his more direct, more uncomfortable discipline. But we find examples of that discipline in Scripture. We can go back in the Old Testament and find a ton of examples. One that comes to mind right now is David. There were some serious consequences with David's sin. God told him that I'm not casting you off. I'm going to keep my covenant with you. Why? Because I love you. And I made a promise, and I keep my promises. However, there are going to be consequences. And if you read the rest of David's story, you can see the catastrophic effects of his sin in his life and the lives of his children. And so sin is serious, and we have to teach our children. We have to remind one another that our sin, our ingratitude, has powerful effects on those around us. And so what John is saying here in a very gentle way, I mean, he says in verse number 11, he kind of tones it down a little bit with beloved. He doesn't say, you ungrateful little children. No, he says beloved. He's trying to plead with them. But he does remind them, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, you know what God did for you, little children. And if he did that for you and did that for me, then we ought to not be ungrateful. We ought to do what he told us to do. And what did he tell us to do? To love one another. And that's what we're going to look at more here in a second. But what I have written down in my notes, and I'll just read it to you. And this may sound harsh to some people, but I think when it's properly understood, you'll get my meaning. Sometimes we do need a good old-fashioned guilt trip from God. There are times where I've taken advantage of God's love and God made me feel guilty and it had the positive result of bringing me back into fellowship with him. God was this way for me. I've been taking advantage of that. I shouldn't do that. When it comes to my relationships with my grandparents, um, I have to say that y'all were very patient and long-suffering with me. There were times where Ditta would ask me to do something and I wouldn't do it. And... I'd feel bad about it afterwards because somebody like Wendy, who's generally Wendy, Wendy would come and she'd say, now listen, buddy, 
Nana and Dita do all this stuff for you. So when they ask you to do something simple like taking out the trash, you need to take out the trash right away. Now, I didn't get that guilt trip from Nana and Dita. <laughs> I got that guilt trip from Wendy, but I'm thankful because it made me realize, wow, yeah, I've been a little ungrateful. They've done all this for me, so I need to do that for them. My mom, at times, she'd use the guilt trip in a positive way and a negative way. Okay, I've found examples of both in our relationship. Um, often after my mom would make some big mistakes, if we had a problem with it and we said something about it, she would say, I deserve more because I'm your mama. So it was a way of trying to deflect all the pressure off of her in a situation and put it back on us. And so that was very manipulative. But there were other times where she did say, listen, I'm your mama and I deserve more respect than that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You do deserve more respect than that. And so, again, this is one of those things that I would say with parents, we follow the principles of Scripture, and it is often difficult to apply those principles. There are times where I wonder, did I say the right thing? Did I approach that situation the right way with my kids? And sometimes God convicts me and I didn't approach it the right way and I have to go to the kids and I have to explain to them, okay, I shouldn't have said it that way. The reason why I said it was justified, but I said it the wrong way to you and I'm sorry, I'm going to try not to do that again. So sometimes, often rather, as Christians and as parents, we have to realize that we make mistakes and I think that apologies are in order when we do, but there is, again, as verse 11 here says, a place for the motivation of God gave his life for me. He took on flesh and he suffered for me. And he did that because he loved me. He didn't do that to hold it over my head and say, okay, I did this for you. So now you better change your behavior or else. Because that's not the kind of motivation I'm talking about here. Right? There is a lot of that that happens in the world. I did this for you. So now you owe me. And if you don't change your behavior, then you know, I'm going to leave you, you know, high and dry. There are people who are like that. That's not that. That's not verse 11 here. Verse 11 is saying, God has loved us unconditionally. We placed our faith in him. We've become his children. And so we need to have that in mind constantly. I, I would say this. I've got it on my notes here and I'll just read it out loud. We are not allowed to feel good when we take advantage of God's love. We're not allowed to feel good. All right. We ought to recognize what we've done and get back in fellowship with God by repentance. Verse number 12, moving on. Uh, so for point three, if you haven't already filled that in, it's the practical nature of love. That's what we're talking about now. And we talked about the reason for love in verse 11. Now verse 12, the result of love. No one has ever seen the Father except for the Son. He's seen him. No one, in fact, can ever see the Father except the Son because the Father dwells in unapproachable light, as Paul says. So when we reflect the love of the Trinity, we look like the Son, and thus like the Father too. We have the privilege of showing him forth to each other and to the world. And so verse 12 says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so, again, going back to the Trinity, the Son is the image of God. And so no one has seen the Father directly except the Son. He has that high priestly access to God that we don't have. But this verse right here is really practical because it's saying that if we want to see God and we want other people to see God, even though God in a particular sense can't be seen by us, we can see God in another sense whenever we are being perfected in his love. Now, the word perfected there means completed. So when you get saved, you enter into a relationship with God 
it's unbreakable. You have a sanctification process beginning. That love of God's engrafted in you, you're born again, but you're not perfected yet. You still have things in your life that need to change. I still have things in my life that need to be changed. And I don't think any person's going to be 100% perfect when they stand before the Lord. But the word here in the more general sense means to be completed. Okay, to move on towards maturity and completion. And he's saying, if we love one another, then God abides in us. He dwells in us. That refers to fellowship and his love is perfected in us. It doesn't mean that God's love becomes any more perfect for us. I think God's already demonstrated that his love for us is perfect by sending his son to pay for our sins on the cross, by giving it all for us. But his love being perfected in us refers to our sanctification moving forward and us becoming more of a light to those around us. And if we're loving one another, then we are showing forth the Father. People can see him. I can see God in y'all's lives. And I think that you have your own skills and abilities and experiences. And God reveals himself to me through y'all, perhaps in a way that I can't see from anyone else except y'all. And I reveal God to y'all too, hopefully, if I'm in fellowship with God and I'm walking with him. So if we're loving one another, then we're in fellowship with God We're going to be seeing God ourselves more. We're going to get closer to him and other people are going to get closer to him as well through us. In verse six of chapter three, I want to go back and read this one for you. Whosoever abideth in him, it's the same verb there's dwell. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither hath known him. So whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. When we're in the act of sinning, then we're not in fellowship with God. We're not seeing God. But when we are loving one another, then we are seeing God. And the the degree that we love one another, that's the greater degree of us seeing God and knowing him personally. And so what this is basically saying is you cannot progress in your sanctification. You cannot know God as much as you would like to know God if you're not interacting with other Christians. There's no lone wolf mentality for Christianity. It's not, okay, I can go off to a deserted island and I can... You know, I can meditate on the word of God and I can, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the monks do. Yeah. That's not going to work. You have, you have to surround yourself by Christians. They minister to you and you minister to them. That's the only way you're going to progress in your relationship with God. That's the only way you're going to see him. Now you can see God to a great extent through his word. Correct. I mean, we read the Bible and we can learn a lot about him, but God did when he designed this relationship from the very beginning, he designed a practical side, a personal side to our relationship with him. Everything's built on the foundation of his word, right? But people can have a very dry orthodoxy, can't they? I mean, you can debate all day long about theology. And I'm... It's in those relationships that you refine your personality and temperament and whether or not you can actually look God-like versus knowing. Yes, absolutely. It gives you an opportunity to flesh out what you read in the Bible for sure. But I would never be able to really learn about God if I didn't have relationships with Christians. And that's because God designed us for those relationships. God's a relational God. We've already talked about that father, son, Holy spirit. And so the result of love, and that's the fill in the blank there for point number three, the result of love, the result of love is that we can see God to a greater degree. We can experience him more. And other people experience him through us. And so let's move on to verse number 13. Hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us 
because he hath given us of his spirit. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And that's something that we've already talked about a lot. John repeats himself a good bit. Have y'all noticed that as we've gone through 1 John? And I think he repeats himself so much because these are some things that need to sink in. We need to remember. But he talks about the Holy Spirit as anointing earlier in the book. And we talked about that either last week or the week before. But when he says here, we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Obviously, fundamentally speaking, we're able to say, all right, I have a relationship with God in my life right now because he's given me the spirit. So he has enabled me to know him by giving me this supernatural presence in my life. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within me. And that's how I can know that me and God are linked to each other, that I'm his child and I have a relationship with him. But I think this goes beyond more than just knowing that we have a relationship with God. I think when it talks about dwelling here, it's the same as verse number 12. When it says, if we love one another, God dwells in us. This is talking about fellowship. So when it says... We know that we dwell in him or have fellowship in him, and he in us, he has fellowship with us because he's given us of his spirit. What all that means is we have here criteria given to us by the Apostle John to determine whether or not we're in fellowship with God. So this is referring back to verse number 12 to what he's talking about so far when he says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us. He's saying the spirit, the Holy Spirit, had revealed it to them from the very earliest days of their faith. So when they first got saved, they were told not only have they received the Holy Spirit, but they were also educated and instructed in how they were going to know that they were close to God in their walk. So whenever you come into the family of God, you ought to receive basic instruction. Now, John keeps it pretty simple for us. The basic instruction is the doctrine of who Christ is. Christ has come in the flesh. If you go back to chapter 1, He's the one who was eternally with the Father, and he was manifested in the flesh. So that's the basic doctrine right there. Going along with that would be that Jesus in the flesh was the propitiation for our sins. So this basic gospel stuff. They would have been instructed in that. After all, they believed in that to be saved. But then beyond that basic gospel message, they had the instruction of loving one another. So this is what you do now. You're saved. You believe the, the basic message. Hold on to that doctrine that we've just shared with you, okay? because that's necessary. If you want to stay in fellowship with God, you got to believe the right things about him when it comes to these very fundamental truths here. But beyond that, if you want to be in fellowship with God, you've got to love one another. And this was all the product of the Spirit speaking through John, speaking in them. That was the anointing that they were told earlier to not abandon, to not forsake that. So if these new super apostles come in, if these Gnostic teachers come in, and they start telling you something different, teaching you new doctrine, teaching you new practice, John is here to remind them that they need to go back to that anointing. And it was abiding in them. They hadn't abandoned that anointing. And apparently, they weren't in danger of doing so. But it was a possibility for them to reject what they had received up to this point. So he tells them to hold fast to what they've been given. That sound doctrine and know that it is of the Spirit that we have received this commandment to love one another. And so the Spirit declares to us. And so point four is all about the declarative nature of love. So we just started discussing this, that in order for us to fulfill our Christian walk, we can't be by ourselves. We have to declare the love of Christ. First off, though, the Spirit declares to us, and that's the fill in the blank there for uh, point one under four there. In verse 13, he has given us of his Spirit, so the Spirit declares to us 
what we ought to know about Jesus and what we ought to know about our relationships with other Christians. I mean, imagine if you were a Christian, where do you go after you get saved? Where do you go from there? Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians that come to church and they get saved. It's like, okay, well, what do I do now, right? They don't know what to do because no one instructs them. I think it's sad. The way they ought to be instructed is, okay, well, now that you're a Christian, you believe this truth, you need to grow in the truth. Now that you've received the love of Christ, he wants you to grow in that love, and he's put you in the body, a family. It's all about family. And so you need to find a family, and you're welcome to be here in this family. Now, of course, if you're saved at an evangelistic event, like a crusade, that's not a church event, that's a revival event, but they ought to have a way of getting people plugged in from that point. You need to be in a local church so you can flesh out your faith and you can mature just like John is telling us here. So the Spirit declares to us, and in verse 14 it says the following, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So verse 14, when he says we have seen and do testify, no doubt that included the rest of the congregation. He said that these are people that are walking with Jesus. That anointing was strong in them. So they have seen and they've testified. How did they see, though? Were these eyewitnesses? Were these people that were there and walked and talked with Jesus? No, probably not. John's pretty old at this point. The people in this congregation that got saved were probably not eyewitnesses. In John chapter 1, he talks about how he and the apostles were eyewitnesses. So how did they see? Well, they saw when the Holy Spirit convicted them and they believed. Okay? They first began to see God before they were blinded. And guys, sight is varying degrees, isn't it? Like if I take off my glasses right now, y'all are a blur. Okay? I can't hardly see. I have horrible eyesight. Okay? Now, I'd probably be able to recognize, if I saw Scott out and about, um, I'd be able to recognize Scott from this distance. Okay? But if you were to go, if you were to go stand over there by the grill, okay, outside, I could not recognize you from that distance. My eyes are that bad, okay? So I have to put on these glasses to be able to make sense of the world around me. When you first get saved, it's like you're seeing the trees. Remember that story in John where the eyesight's given to him? He's like, at first, it's like, I see men walking like trees, you know, trees walking like men. It's, it's very vague. You know, he's got some outlines of reality. And that's how it is when you first get saved, guys. You see the basics. Okay, you get the fundamentals because you believe those fundamentals, but you've got to get better eyesight. And thankfully, your eyesight will progressively get better if you're doing what John tells you here, if you're walking with the Lord in the way he prescribes. Now, my eyesight's not going to get any better, I assume. It's probably going to get worse over time. One day it will when I get to heaven, right? Amen. But right now, my physical eyesight's not getting any better, but my spiritual eyesight can. And so the Spirit is helping us see more clearly I believe you Christy I believe you <laughs> I'm gonna look forward to that now that you said that <laughs> yeah that's what I'm hoping right amen but in verse 14 we have seen and we do testify the father sent the son to be the savior of the world so this is what we're standing on this is a hill to die on we've seen it we've believed it John could say this in a greater sense than even they could because he was there He's like, I saw him. I saw him resurrected. I was able to, you know, put my hand in his nail marks. I was able to put my hand in his side. And so John could say this in a greater sense than his audience could. But we can all resonate with this, can't we? 
Can y'all say that we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? I can say that. I've seen God at work in my life. I've seen God, most importantly, through his word when I believed it when I was six years old. And hopefully I'm progressively seeing him more as I grow in my faith. But in verse 15, now it shifts a little bit and it tells us, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Now, confessing here is simply acknowledging. Okay, this doesn't really tell us how to confess in what context. This doesn't say you got to go to another country to confess it. It doesn't say that you got to confess it over the internet, that you got to confess it in written form. It just says confess. So this is talking about the congregation, wherever they're planted, wherever they're at. Uh, this congregation was no doubt in Turkey. Okay, back then, Asia Minor. So that's where they were located. And so wherever you're located, confess. So you confess how? Guys, we're confessing just by coming to church. Now, some people may not know that we're coming to church, but we tell people about it. I mean, we've got a podcast that people are listening to right now, hopefully. We got a website. So we have a means of confessing to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. And because of that, we can be confident as long as we are free about our confession. We're dwelling in God and he's dwelling in us. We're close to God and we are pleasing God in our actions. However, what happens if there comes a day where if you do confess Jesus as the Son of God, there is the very real threat of persecution. That is what's being talked about in Matthew chapter 10. So in Matthew 10, when it talks about denying Jesus and thus being denied before the Father. Okay, this is also in the context of disciples, believers, who are going out, and they're proclaiming the message of the gospel, and the persecution that takes place is going to force them to have to make a choice. I'm either going to maintain my confession, which I have been giving up to this point, Jesus is the Son of God, or I'm going to deny it. Now, what happens if we deny it? This is where you get to really big divergence in interpretations. In Matthew chapter 10, it's believed that denying Christ would automatically forfeit your salvation, or it would prove thus that you were not saved in the first place. And so being denied before the Father is interpreted as not being permitted into heaven. However, that's not the best way to look at it. Jesus often talked about the disciples being re rewarded for all of their sacrifices. They sacrificed in a way, guys, that I happened. I mean, they left behind their families. They left behind their professions. And Peter, he asked, what will we receive since we have left everything to follow you? And Jesus promised, you will sit on 12 thrones in Israel when the kingdom comes. Okay, that's a special reward because they left everything. So we have to put Matthew chapter 10 statement in context with rewards. And I'm going to read this passage to you. And it's Paul, and he talks about the same sort of thing. In fact, the wording is the same, so we should expect the meaning to be the same as well. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have what some people think is an early hymn. Some people think it's an early creed, but Paul says it's a faithful saying. So in 2 Timothy 2.11, it says, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. So that's referring, I believe, to if you've died with Christ, you died to your sin. Paul, uh, Paul talked about that, that I've already been crucified with Christ. So if your sins have been taken care of and you've been justified, then you will live with him one day. Now, we're already living, spiritually speaking. We've got eternal life right now, so what is Paul talking about? 
the glorified bodies that are promised to us. Verse 12, he goes on and says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So he just said, if we suffer, we shall reign with him. Now, salvation doesn't come through suffering. Salvation comes through faith in the promise, faith in the gospel. So when it talks about suffering here, what is it talking about? Persecution. Yeah, exactly. It's in the context of those eternal rewards. So if right now we take a stand for Christ and we suffer for it, then we will reign with him. He's going to see that suffering and he's going to regard it as worthy of a reward. And that reward will be reigning with Christ. However that looks, we'll have to find out one day, but that's promised to us. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes, so I think that being denied, yes, I think being denied before the Father is Jesus at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and saying that if you do not confess Christ when you're faced with persecution, then you will be denied the privilege of reigning with him. And this would be elaborated further in Paul's words in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Before the judgment, before the judgment seat of Christ, he is going to evaluate our works. And I think one of the most important works is our confessing Jesus before the world. Because that's something that's brought up a lot in Scripture. And so there are a lot of things that are going to be evaluated. I don't think it's just confession. There are a lot of other things that we're supposed to do too, loving one another. You can confess Jesus and not love one another, okay? So there are a lot of things. But that is one of those things where if you do not confess Christ but you deny Christ, then you will be denied to some extent the reward that's promised to us when we come before Christ at the rapture. And so he is going to be the one who evaluates it. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. And, and I've actually talked with people about that. I've talked with people about that scenario. And for those who couldn't hear, for those who couldn't hear what, what my Nana just said, the analogy is, or the scenario is, someone has family, they're threatened. If you don't deny Christ, then we're going to kill them. The person denies Christ, been faithful all his life up to this point. God knows his heart. I, I honestly think in that scenario, God's not going to withhold any reward from that person. And I've talked with other people about this who are really strong in their rewards theology. And this is something they write books on. And that particular scenario, when I shared it with them, they said, God knows the heart there. Um, now, if it was an act of cowardice, on the other hand, there would be some consequence regarding to your reward. However, God is going to see all the factors that we can't. And so, again, let's say you went your entire life faithfully serving the Lord. You were tempted, and you overcame many of those temptations, and you served God, and it did involve a sacrifice. And you were presented with persecution. And under that temptation, you buckled, and you denied Christ. Does that mean you won't get anything at all? I think that's going to be something that Christ evaluates. So I'm not saying this is, uh, okay, there's one thing that you've got to get right, one thing. And you can do anything else you want. You know, you confess Christ. But you can not love one another and you can sin in all these ways and, and God will reward you as long as you just confess Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that this is one thing that is brought up often in the New Testament that will be evaluated when we stand before God. So I know that if I was being persecuted 
and I denied Christ out of fear. And it had nothing to do with my family. It's just about me. I do believe that I would still be saved and I'd stand before God because I've been born again. Once you're born again, you're not unborn. Once you're justified, you're not unjustified. Absolutely. Yes. And Peter denied Jesus three times. And there's no hint that Peter lost his salvation. So I think that there will be, um, there will be a consequence. In Peter's case, he, he, his life did not end at that point. Okay. So Peter had time to undo it essentially. Okay. And so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and see, again, this is not in my mind. I don't believe this is a salvation issue. Um, again, going back to Paul here, he says, if we suffer, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Deny us what? Reigning with him. And we know reigning with Jesus is distinct from simply being in heaven. There's a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. There is a distinction there, but he goes on in the same passage. So anybody who thinks he might be talking about salvation, Paul he caught that, I think, even back then, so that way people would not make that conclusion by adding another verse. He says, if we believe not, that means if we're unfaithful, in whatever sense, yet he abideth faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So if you put both those things together, it means if we deny Christ, and I think this is not just in the persecuted scenario. If we deny Christ in other ways, because we can deny Christ, he can tell us to, all right, this sinful habit that you got going on right now, stop it. And if we say, no, we're going to keep doing it, we've just denied him. We're pushing God out of our life. If we deny Christ, we will. If we persist in that unrepentantly, we will be denied some reward in heaven. However, even if we're unfaithful, even if we believe not, as the text literally says in Greek here, he remaineth faithful. So while I think there are a lot of cases of people who they really didn't believe it was a profession and they fell away from that profession, Okay, we don't want to say necessarily that, okay, everybody that loses faith was genuine because maybe they weren't. However, I do believe firmly that there are some people, perhaps numerous people, that they did believe when they were younger. They did believe before the lies of the world got a hold of them. And because they weren't grounded in their faith, their faith was eroded. Usually it's not once and done. It's an erosion over time. And eventually their faith was was lost. I think that even if a person loses faith in Christ, if they really had it in the first place, God will not let go of them. If I was walking across the street with my son and he was fighting me, not holding on to my hand at this point. I mean, he is fighting me. He wants me to let him go. Am I going to let him go when we're crossing the street? No, I'm not because I love him and he doesn't realize what he's doing. And so I think that God is going to hold on to us even if, God forbid, we stopped holding on to him. And that is something that I think many Christians have never really heard that before and they've not been taught that. And it shows that there is a motivation for serving Jesus and being, being rewarded before him one day is not going to happen as the Calvinists imagine it, everybody's going to get the reward because everybody's going to persevere. And if you don't persevere, you're never a Christian in the first place. Exactly. Just like you said, first Corinthians three, we can lose a lot, but we will be not lost. Even if 
One is saved as by fire. That means snatched out of the fire, saved from the fire. Though the house that they built representing their life was consumed and went up in smoke. So I think that we as Christians ought to say to ourselves every day, we are saved by grace. Let's not worry about hell anymore because it doesn't exist as far as we're concerned. As Charles Spurgeon once said, it's like God poured water on the flames. I can't remember exactly what he said, so I don't think it was that. So I'm not quoting it by word, but he said that for a Christian, hell doesn't exist anymore. For us, it's as if it doesn't exist at all because those fires have been extinguished by Christ for a Christian who has believed in Jesus. However, we shouldn't say, okay, well, since I'm saved, there's no potential of me being disappointed or even God being disappointed when I come before him one day. Because I know that no matter what I did as a kid, I would still be accepted as a child of my parents. My grandparents would never cast me off no matter what I did because they illustrated that kind of unconditional love to their daughter. They never cast her off. However, there were many times where they were disappointed with her actions and life was hard because we had a, a difficult time getting along with my mom whenever she was, you know, being rebellious. And of course, when she repented, we accepted her back and we were on good terms. But it is possible for someone to be disappointed when they come before Christ one day. But I think we need to also understand and we need to temper this by God accepts our apology when we genuinely give it to him and our sins are forgiven. And I do believe that. So I think if someone's sinning in their life and they repented of that sin and they repented maybe a second before the rapture happened, God accepts that repentance. Now, does that mean they'll necessarily receive the same reward as somebody else who, you know, was persevering in righteousness? No one's perfectly persevering, by the way, but... Um, I think that person will probably lose something, but I don't think that there will be any disappointment in the words of Christ. I don't think there will be a rebuke because they already learned their lesson and they repented and God's not going to hold that against them. So I do believe that God's merciful and he's patient and he's forgiving, but uh, it is something to be mindful of as we get closer and closer to the rapture to... Yes. Yeah. That's, that's something that we could study, you know, and spend a whole day talking about that. But I think that in Matthew 24, it does imply that there will be professing Christians. And I think these people are genuine believers when persecution comes their way in the tribulation. This is of course, after the rapture, by the way, these people got saved after the rapture, but, um, there's going to be persecution and those people in many cases, it says their love is going to grow cold and there will be a denial of Christ. Now, when that happens, I think that they will be taken out of the world. I really do believe that they will perish in a physical sense because it says the one who endures to the end shall be saved. So a person who doesn't endure in their faith but denies Christ, I don't think that person will stand physically before Christ having made it through the whole seven years. I don't think that person's going to be left standing. I think that person will have died by God's judgment, such as Ananias and Sapphira, that sort of thing will happen to them. And I think that that death will be heartbreaking because it will mean that they did lose a reward, not salvation. But there will not be the same victorious acclaim given to them as the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. 
or the many Jews or Gentiles who are preaching Jesus during the tribulation and are killed for their faith. There'll be a lot of martyrs. Those people are going to receive a martyr's crown. The people who denied Christ and died early on, those people are not going to receive the martyr's crown. And so these are things that, again, we could discuss more and we will discuss more at some point, but it just shows that it's not, if you persevere to the end, then you make it into heaven and everybody's going to get the same thing. And it's just, it's all going to be cut and dry. You're in or you're out. The Bible says you can know that you're going to heaven by believing in Jesus. It's a settled thing. The moment you get saved, but after you get saved, he's got stuff for you to do. And he will evaluate those things that you do, not your salvation. That's settled. He will evaluate your walk with him when he comes back at the rapture. And so Uh, Wrapping everything up, the fourth point was the declarative nature of love. The Spirit declares to us, and we declare to others. And the consequence of not declaring to others is to be out of fellowship with God and to experience His chastening, which He gives lovingly to correct us. And hopefully, this was a blessing to those listening. We're going to go eat some food. So God bless. Mm